0: data it's a 22 billion dollar deal uh it marks one of the biggest financial mergers in about a decade and it's a really as jason alluded to and talked about earlier a win for private equity giant kkr it's a world he knows a lot about it and so does jenny serain who wrote the story for bloomberg news she's finance reporter at bloomberg in our bloomberg interactive broker studio um as jason likes to make fun of me whoa uh. whoa, uh. <laughs> whoa carol it's whoa uh this is a big deal yes. and a big win for kkr
2: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, uh, KKR made this bet um, at the top of the market, and First Data has certainly struggled in recent years as it tried to find its footing. Um, The payments processing world is a very competitive one. Right. I think it's interesting if you go out and talk to small businesses about the little payment terminals that they have. Like, You'll hear them say, no, we have guys in here every day trying to sell us a new one. So it's a a very competitive business. KKR obviously made this one of its biggest bets, um, and today it pays off.
1: Well, and tell us about this this business because, as you say, it's something that – Almost everyone probably encounters, wittingly or unwittingly, every day, multiple times a day. How has it evolved and how do these two companies getting together move forward?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So the payment processing business, it's a very interesting one. Um, Like you said, you kind of – you interact with it every day anytime you swipe um, at the point of sale or when you check out online even. That's also payment processing. Um, It's incredibly, incredibly competitive,
0: and it's really a scale play. And so Mm. the big survive, and that's basically it. Right. The more transactions, right, that you have or more users using your service, if you will, even if it's pennies or a fraction of a cent that multiple (laughs) pays off.
2: It's a really, it's got a high fixed cost associated with the business. Um, So right, every single transaction matters and and that's really the name of the game. Um, And so today you see Fiserv, which is actually not a big player in this space. They're more on the kind of plumbing and and back office tech for banks. Um, You see them making a big bet in terms of getting in bed with First Data, which is more definitely on this kind of point of sale uh, payment processing side. So it's these two companies that you've probably never heard of. They're both massive and have, have a lot of scale in their individual businesses kind of coming together. And it'll be interesting to see how those two interact.
1: Because clearly one of the biggest threats here is from sort of the lower end or the startup uh, world, not so much a startup anymore, Square, uh, clearly has made some inroads here. We hear a lot about them, hear a lot about PayPal. You know, we hear so many of these more maybe familiar names to investors, familiar names to consumers. How do they play into this?
2: Yeah, so I think a lot of people might point to a First Data and say, well, did they miss the boat on Square? Did they miss the boat on PayPal? Um, it's a fair question, and and they obviously have kind of their own competitors to both of those businesses, but they certainly don't have, you're right, the name recognition. A lot of that's actually how they're distributed. So First Data has this humongous sales force, um, and then they also distribute through banks. So when a small business goes in and says, hey, I want to open up a sandwich shop down the street, the bank is like, okay, here's your business bank account, and also do do you need some payment processing? And, right. and so that's kind of how First Data whereas square has this pretty website that for, that small businesses can go to and just kind of directly buy from them. And so um, they don't have the same name recognition, but they're they're definitely bigger. Um but so it's interesting. But you do wonder
0: about that story on PayPal last week that yeah. was in the magazine that, you know, they went through some tough times as well, but they, by reaching out to kind of their so-called enemies, mm-hmm. the big credit card companies and so on and so forth, they have been able to grow their business. So they're finding there's enough business to go around for everyone and that by working together maybe it's better than having everybody kind of being competing against one another. And you do wonder whether this ultimately will lead to more collaboration or more consolidation.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean... In payments, Frenemies is the name of the game. <laughs> yeah.
0: so It's the way, name of the game in a lot of Yeah, yeah totally. is Increasingly so.
1: And one of the interesting things we should point out here, and Carol and I ha- actually got a chance just a, a couple months ago to spend some time with this guy, uh, Frank Bizignano, the CEO of First Data, ex-JP Morgan. In fact, he was sort of uh, alluded to at this lunch That's I right. was just at yeah. uh, where Jamie Dimon was speaking, being interviewed. You know... He, Frank Bisignano is one of these guys who sort of made his way on the bench, as it were, a high-level bench at Mm -hmm. J.P. Morgan. And then he goes and he takes over a company that you alluded to was not doing great. Uh, You know, KKR bought them at the top of the market. He's really fixed this. He will, and we'll talk about this later in the show, he'll get paid big time uh, for this, and he ends up really as the number two of the combined company, it sounds like. Is that right?
2: Right, yeah. So Frank will take over as president and COO, um, and the Pfizer CEO will be CEO of the combined company. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, J.P. Morgan has this very deep bench, and you see them all over um, all over the finance world. So you've got Charlie Scharf, who's right. now at BNY Mellon after right. spending a couple years That's as right. CEO of Visa. Um, yeah, you've got him. all Who over the Who plays
1: into this market. uh, very pointedly I mean his name came up I believe in the PayPal story you know as one who sort of made nice with the CEO of PayPal trying to figure this out because uh, we keep coming back to this but it's true this is frenemies writ large all all over the place and the idea that so many of these guys have worked together in a previous life is fascinating does it
0: mean so is there another deal or another connection consolidation that we have to be watching out for and uh, I just want to point out we are watching the UK Parliament because uh uh an outcome of that no confidence vote um, is expected any moment. So as soon as it crosses uh, the Bloomberg, we may just interrupt uh, Jenny and let you guys know it. But are are there anybody else in terms of players in the industry that you're watching right now?
2: Yeah, I think this is an industry that's really ripe for consolidation. Like we talked about earlier, scale is the name of the mm-hmm. game. So you have to get bigger if you want to survive. And so the other big players in this space are, are the likes of Total System Services and um, – uh, WorldPay actually just did a pretty big acquisition of Vantiv a few years ago, but um, you have to kind of look at those players and think: is there possibilities?
1: And who else uh, are you watching beyond processors? You know, you look at financial services. It's obviously a big day on for the big banks. Uh, anything else jump to your mind? What are you guys talking about? Just on the quickly. Desk?
2: Yeah, I think earnings this morning were interesting. We've had a tough quarter for fixed income, but uh, it seems like investors are looking for good news all around.
1: This is Bloomberg
3: Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Prime Minister May winning the vote of confidence in her government. You can hear uh, the reaction there. Let's listen in.
4: The eyes to the right, 306.
1: The nose to the left, 325. So the
4: nose have it.
0: The nose have it. Unlock.
4: Point of order, the Prime
5: Minister. On a point of order, Mr. Speaker, I'm pleased that this House has expressed its confidence in the government tonight take this responsibility lightly, and my Government will continue its work to increase our prosperity, guarantee our security, and to strengthen our union. And yes, we will also continue to work to deliver on the solemn promise we made to the people of this country to deliver on the result of the referendum and leave the European Union. I believe this duty is shared by every member of this House, and we have a responsibility to identify a way forward that can secure the backing of the House. To that end, I have proposed a series of meetings between senior parliamentarians and representatives of the Government over the coming days, and I would like to invite the leaders of parliamentary parties to meet with me individually, and I would like to start these meetings tonight. The Government approaches these meetings in a constructive spirit and I urge others to do the same. But we must find solutions that are negotiable and command sufficient support in this House. And, as I have said, we will return to the House on Monday to table an amendable motion and to make a statement about the way forward. The House has put its confidence in this government. I stand ready, I stand ready to work with any member of this House to deliver on Brexit and ensure that this House retains the confidence of the British people.
0: You've been listening to U.K. Prime Minister Theresa May. Uh, She did win that confidence vote, uh, 325 to 306. So it was uh, rather close there. And uh, the prime minister inviting party leaders to meet from tonight on Brexit, uh, inviting the leaders of rival parties to start those talks again this evening. So the process goes on now. It's now can we figure out a new deal To get Brexit done.
1: Maria Tadeo is still with us. One of our Bloomberg colleagues over there in the UK. So Maria, not a huge surprise. This is where we thought it would go. Anything jump out at you as you heard the results?
6: Well, I would say it just went, uh, according to script. We knew that the same MPs who voted down her deal would vote to keep her in power today because the conservatives don't want to see the opposition in power. It was as clear as day. That it's really not going to go anywhere. What I would say is May, just after the result was announced, that she wants to have cross-party talks with members of the opposition and again this goes back to the idea which we just mentioned about the fact that she knows the deal she has right now is not going to clear the UK parliament in the way it is and she will probably have to reach out to members of the opposition to try to get something in between.
1: So Maria I I gotta ask you and you you started to talk about this a little bit earlier and then I think we were we had to jump but uh Talk to us about the EU and sort of their position at this point, what they're saying, what you've heard, and kind of what they do in the meantime as the UK tries to pull another deal together.
6: Right. So I would say on that front, two things. From In the eyes of the European Union – They know, and for them, it's very clear that the deal they have and the deal that took two years to make, I would just stress that it was a deal that was in the making for two years. It's not going to fly. It's that simple. And they really want to hear from May, who could be in Brussels this week, what is it that she needs to get it done, but in a very specific Way They want to just hear from the Prime Minister, I need A, B, C and D to get this done. Until now, they feel the UK, because the country is so divided, and because the country has really struggled to define its relationship with the EU, they still haven't gotten to that point. Until they do that, there's nothing they can do. There's nothing that can flip 200 votes against me yesterday to... 200 votes in favor now. Well, and then secondly, I think the conversation has now switched to the Brexit deadline. If you remember, the U.K. was supposed to leave the European Union in March. Right, And right. Brussels EU officials think this is not going to happen. The U.K. will have to stay longer.
0: Maria, put into perspective, you know, we're watching the Bloomberg Live blog and Jeffrey Corbyn of the Labour Party coming out and saying that the government, the U.K. government, should remove the prospect of a no-deal Brexit before he can talk about anything further with the UK Prime Minister, Prime Minister May has declined to do so. What, why is that such an important provision to get there uh, as these talks go back and forth? Why is, and why is it so contentious? Right. The opposition has said that
6: they want to send a very clear message that no deal really is not an option. I have to say also, in the eyes of the European Union, they think this is an empty threat. There's just two months to go. The UK cannot afford, in the eyes of the EU, to go no deal. It's that simple. But for Prime Minister May, and you have to consider that there are many of her own colleagues who think the UK should just go for a clean break, they've always said she's been very soft because she should have said, I'm walking out. If you don't give me what I want, it's no deal. I'm leaving. This is something that she's not done. But she continues to say, well, it's still one of the options. She obviously wants to keep some of the hardcore Brexiteers in line, and they want this threat to stay alive because they think it might be a real possibility. Prime Minister May, for two years, made it very clear that she wants to get the deals out.
1: Well, and and Maria, this is, after all, Bloomberg, and we've been watching this. We were talking with our collective Mm. boss, John Micklethwaite, about this yesterday. You know, the markets seem to be, at least so far, sort of taking this in stride, letting this all play out. Uh, I mean, I was looking at the pound not moving too much. I mean, there was a little turbulence throughout the day, but, you know, it's it's up a fraction of 1% uh, at this point versus the dollar. What do you make of how the markets are reacting or not reacting here? (laughs)
6: Or not reacting, I think that's a good way to put it. I would say it's three things. One is the fact that uh, what you see is that there is no majority to get a deal, but there is no majority to go no deal. And for the market, that is the most, I would say, severe scenario. The fact that every time we put something to a vote, it becomes clear that the vast majority of MPs don't want to go that way kind of makes the market feel relieved. Okay, there is going to be a deal when we don't know, but everyone... Still wants to get the deal. And I would also say everyone probably after yesterday thinks that uh, this is just going to go on and on and on and on. We're not really not facing a real deadline in two months. The EU is already operating on the basis that the UK will ask for an extension of Article 50, that is the Brexit date. And ultimately, even for Prime Minister May, if she wants to leave and she's made it clear she wants Brexit. It's very difficult to get the legislation done in two months. That means another extension for the markets. They probably think no deal is probably not going to happen, and anything beyond actually points to a soft Brexit.
0: All right, we're going to leave it on that note. Maria Tadeo, thank you so much. Bloomberg News reporter there in London uh, with an update in the latest on that uh, confidence vote for the U.K. prime minister. So, we always pay attention, of course, to the Fed Beige book, and especially so now, thanks to a dearth of economic data because of the government shutdown. Let's take a look. At this latest set of data points, as Jason mentioned, really some key headlines there. Brett Ewing is with us, chief market strategist at First Franklin Financial Services, joining us on the phone from Tallahassee, Florida. So I'm hoping you had some time to uh, – I know there's been a lot going on uh, in terms of the world and markets right now, but we did get the Fed beige book. And I'm just curious, so what in particular might have jumped out at you, Brett?
4: Well, I think uh, the tight labor market, uh, I think, is jumping out uh, – you know, I, I don't really want to see a lot of deterioration in the labor market. I know it's tight, and people often get worried about inflation coming, and, you know, eventually that is going to happen. But I do like to see the labor market really holding up here. Um, I think I think the modest growth was probably due to kind of deer in the headlights. I mean, people were kind of frozen there in the fourth quarter, so –
1: And so if you're sitting at the Fed, Brett, and you have been pledging your dependence to data to anyone who will listen, if you're Jay Powell or any of his colleagues, what does this data say to you about what happens at the January meeting and what happens in the first part of this year in terms of rates?
4: Well, I think what would happen and what is going to happen is nothing. I think that I think they're they're off the table for the probably the first six months of this year, unless some really large inflation numbers start coming through the system, which we're not expecting that. So,
1: so. six month pause. Let's just chill out and see what happens from here.
4: Yeah, I mean the futures are have it no rate hike this year, right? So you know how fast the the futures market can change on that. Well,
1: so. we saw it change pretty fast toward the end of right. the year, didn't we? <laughs> right, <laughs> well, right. Well, and what's so.
0: interesting too is that the outlooks from it were generally positive, but many of the districts reporting that Contacts had become less optimistic in response to increased financial market volatility, rising short-term interest rates, falling energy prices, and elevated trade and political uncertainty. I mean, that is a big bunch of macro issues out there. And the increased financial market volatility we talk about, where you know concerns become reality, right? And animal spirits start to impact activity. And so the Fed, we know they've said they're they're paying attention, right? So it does make sense to maybe just take a pause and let. Let's see whether this is just a blip uh, or whether it's something more, um, you know, more of a longer-term ter- trend. Yeah,
4: I, I think I think uh, uh, Esther George said said it correctly yesterday. She said that it's it's appropriate probably to pause here and let's see how these rate hikes of 2018 digest through the economy and let's see what actually transpires from those because they they do. They, they do change rates immediately, but it does still take three to six months to really filter through uh, the entire economy.
1: And w- what else are you worried about as you look around the world? I mean, I feel like our all of our heads are spinning every day. I mean, Carol joked as we were coming into this segment that we had practically forgotten about the Beige Book because <laughs> we spent 15 minutes talking about Brexit. Yesterday, right. we were talking about China. You know, I mentioned this earlier in the show, I was at this luncheon where Jamie Dimon was speaking, you know, and he rattled off 10 different things that are of concern to him, you know, one of which is the Fed, one of which is Brexit, another of which is is china another of which is you know sort of generally trade and tariffs outside of china what worries you the most
4: well i'll tell you there's three things going on right now that i think are important to pay attention to one uh and uh, i think the trade war with china and these negotiations need to go really well into the end of this month and if we see that reverse and start escalating. Um, and the discussions start going in a direction that's not very favorable i think that we could have some global problems uh as far as all the economic all the economies around the globe because uh once we pass that march and if those new tariffs come on i think it's going to poise some serious problems out there for not only our economy but the rest of the world so to me that is we want to see some headway right on those talks and then secondly I think you know uh, we don't want to see a hard brexit so we're we do have a concern about that and the effects of that and I think that they will probably we're leaning towards they get uh, a, some kind of negotiated deal as far as the shutdown concern clearly I don't think the market is really that concerned about it. it is going to affect GDP in this first quarter some estimates I've seen have already, the cost of the shutdown has already exceeded what Trump is asking for for right. the wall. Yeah. Um, I think that they get some resolution here before the end of the month, though. Well,
0: yep, and then we'll certainly see what happens. The day's continuing to tick off, though. Brett Ewing, thank you so much. Chief Market Strategist at First Franklin Financial Services. <laughs> it appears to be a pretty good
1: day, pretty good week, actually, Carol, to be a big bank. Mm -hmm. Uh, Earnings coming out, and despite some misses around fixed income trading, especially, stocks are rallying in a big way, hitting multi-year highs at the moment. Marty Mosby is Director of Bank and Equity Strategies at Vining Spark, joining... Sparks, excuse me. Uh, joining us on the phone from Memphis, Tennessee, we've got a nice little Southern thing going. I know, you're loving uh, it in this show. I'm loving it, loving Carol. It, loving uh, Marty, it. great to have you with us. And uh, your strong buys on the big ba- some of the big banks are uh, looking pretty good right now. Tell us what you saw.
7: Well, really, the bar was set so low that all we really needed to hear was the first thing was credit wasn't deteriorating uh... in our proprietary credit cycle monitor said that wasn't the case but we need to hear the management say it uh, begin to turn the tide the other thing we needed to see was and we've seen this in a community banking space we've seen the loan growth accelerate We've also seen margins continuing to expand, even though, you know, interest rates aren't as favorable as what they were probably a year ago. We're still seeing a rounding up of net interest margins at this higher level of rates. So those things have been positive. So profitability is improving, credit's not deteriorating. Uh, Those are the two things investors want to see going into the quarter.
0: All right. And what does it tell us kind of more broadly about the outlook? As you said, everybody was so pessimistic. So we really wanted to see what the big banks, the big financials had to say, uh, to give us an idea of visibility and whether it's as bad as it's been feeling, or people have been predicting, or whether mm, it's not so bad.
7: Well, again, when the markets react like they did in the you know fourth quarter, a lot of that's based on the fact that we call it the chicken little investing. <laughs> uh, as soon as you think of something like the sky is falling, we're running in as fast as possible because we remember 2008. In that memory, there's discipline, which basically says there's these kind of corrections because people don't want to be caught in that same trap, so they leave the party very quickly. Uh, then once the clouds begin to break off, then they come back out again, uh, and that's the cycle that we're going through. That slows our growth, but then it also elongates this cycle. So this cycle is going to be much longer because of the what we call growth governor that's been placed on it because of what we went through in 2008 to 2010.
1: So, Marty, let's talk about the banks we heard from this morning. Two, uh, they're two banks, but they're pretty different in mm-hmm. terms of where they make their money, their footprint, et cetera. Both, as we mentioned at the top of this conversation, up pretty dramatically. Their stocks up pretty dramatically. Let's start with Goldman. What did you hear? Yep. It felt like deal-making uh, was a big headline there in terms of what really drove the quarter.
7: Well, you really had uh, what I would say is a tone at the top that came out with the new leadership. Yeah, uh, they had brand new presentations and brand new press releases, and while that is just cosmetic, it showed a transparency that they were willing to now step forward and begin to talk about the business, explain what their path was, and that in of itself began to address some of the reputational issues. Goldman was trading and still does below its tangible book value, but producing the 12 to 14 percent depending on what quarter you pick, return on tangible common equity, which means it should trade at a premium to its tangible book value if, again, those pressures from these issues are going to begin to dissipate. And what we saw in this quarter, with the management's willingness to come out and really talk about things in a straightforward way, uh, cl- clear signs that they uh, they do have a path forward.
1: Right. And this, of course, is the sort of, as you alluded to, sort of the new look David Solomon Goldman Sachs. And that reputational risk, we should remind people, stems largely from, the ongoing investigation into their involvement with uh, 1MDB over uh, in Malaysia. Did you hear what you needed to hear in terms of that specific issue?
7: Actually, we did see some crumbs. You can't talk about it a lot because it's an ongoing investigation, But we did feel, you know, some things that they were talking about in the sense that they gave a little bit of the back office type of things, that they had had certain things cleared, that they had certain things checked off. So they had some boxes that they were able to highlight that said, look, when we went through this process, these are some things that were checked off. And at that time, there were other financial institutions that were involved with this. So that colored a a little different picture than what you're hearing on the headlines. So there was at least enough there to feel like, okay, yes, there's going to be some more fines. There's going to be some regulatory pressure. But there is probably, you know, not a a direct hit to the franchise. Uh, This is, again, an issue, an occasion, an event that has to be dealt with, but it's not something that erodes the franchise value of the company.
0: Hey, kudos to you, too, because you put out a note on Friday, I believe it was, and you talked about, or was it the beginning of the week, but you just said, while increased uncertainty has pushed the large-cap U.S. banks towards their minimum support levels – Our expectation for continued fundamental improvement suggests the large-cap U.S. banks should begin to outperform. So kudos to you because you did say, you know, look for some outperformance here. What's your favorite name in the space, the big bank space?
7: So when we look at the big bank space, what we really focus on is super regional banks. And we've seen that. If you go to the money center banks, you know, if you look at J.P. Morgan and Citigroup, and then you know, even with Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, their revenues are under a little bit more pressure, not having as much capital deployment. But as you go into Bank of America and then you start to move into U.S. Bank Corp and get all the way down to like the Sun Trust or the Comericas of the world, uh, you actually are seeing all the catalysts that they need to be able to produce what we think is still double-digit EPA growth following, you know, 30% this year, with the 20 of that coming from tax reform, but still 10% underlying EPS growth, and we think that double-digit continues for the super regional banks. So those super regional banks are really kind of got thrown out with everybody else uh, when the, really the environment is, is really in their favor right now.
1: And so Bank of America, what could trip them up uh, just since they're top of mind today? What would you hear that it would be a little bit worrisome, if anything?
7: Really, there's very little to worry about it, which is why people like it so much. Um, The blocking and tackling that they're doing, they have one of the better banking franchises that they've been able to pull together. And they were doing that even as they went through all the problems of the recession uh, and the financial crisis, because most of that came from countrywide acquisition. It didn't come from the core bank. So as they peeled all that onion and threw it away, that underlying bank gained momentum. The Merrill Lynch acquisition is now coming to fruition, and you're seeing the benefits of that with uh, wealth management. Uh, And so you're seeing all those kind of pieces. So really, they have a a fairly clear path in front of them, being able to leverage uh, the the bank that they built out, uh, which is now uh, well-positioned to be able to continue to take market share.
1: And it is interesting. I mean, you know, Brian Moynihan obviously has just tried his level best just to keep his head down amid everything that's been (laughs) happening uh, across (laughs) the broader economy. And even, you know, as it relates to kind of the big banking sector over the past year. So maybe that's starting to pay off.
7: It is, and that's really what you have to do. You can't get distracted by all the noise and things, and they did a great job of isolating the franchise from the issues that they did get in that countrywide acquisition. Uh, we we would draw a parallel or dotted line over to what you're seeing, even with Wells Fargo and the issues that yeah. they're going through now. I think they're a couple years behind Bank of America, but after they've gone through such an internal you know, kind of review and strategic initiatives to make themselves better, they will come out much stronger after they go through that process. That's and you're starting to see satisfaction levels start to move up with their customers now as
0: well. Good stuff. Hey, Marty, thank you so much. Great to go through all those names with you. Marty Mosby, he's director of bank and equity strategies over at Vining Sparks.
2: How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please,
7: I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive.
6: Just drive, baby. Just drive, baby. It's the question that
1: drives
5: us. This is The Drive to the Close. That's
1: punk
7: music. will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio.
0: It is time for The Drive to the Close. Ryan Dietrich is back with us. Senior market strategist for LPL Financial. $659 billion in assets under management. joins us uh, once again from Charlotte, North Carolina. Ryan, nice to have you back with us. Happy New Year. Uh, And it does feel like it's definitely a different tone and trade when it comes to the equity markets. How do you see it on a technical basis?
3: Well, that's right, Carol. First off, thanks for having me back and happy 2019. So good good riddance to 2018. Obviously, so far, 2019 is on a Good bounce, we'll call it. You know, so when you look at the technicals, yes, you know, we clearly have had a good start to January. We are impressed with the overall broad participation in in markets so far this year. Small caps, as we speak, uh, small caps are up almost eight percent for the year, almost doubling the S and P. But let's put it in perspective what just happened: worst fourth quarter since financial crisis, down fourteen percent, and the first year since at least 1950 where the S and P was the worst month of the year for stocks. So we had an extremely oversold level finally you know some potential good news uh, with the fed putting things on pause we think we're getting inching closer to some type of a resolution with china and that's kind of what it took to really spark a really good bounce since the uh, christmas eve closing low
1: so ryan uh talk to me about the beige book what did you see in there that either gave you confidence in how everything's moving along or made you say well, i don't know about that
3: well, you know, it, uh, to be real honest, Jason, the Beige Book didn't change our tune too much. I mean, the general consensus is still the Fed is going to be on pause. It's potentially going to be, according to futures markets, zero rate hikes this year. We're still over the camp, though, that the economy is a little bit better than people are giving it co- giving it credit. If we look at earnings here, we expect better than average long-term earnings this year. Long-term earnings are about 6.5%. We think 7 or 8% is quite likely. So the Beige Book did kind of put a little bit of a dam around things because the trade issues are still there. But, again, we think more forward-looking, we can get past those things, and we do not see recession this year. Let's keep it real simple here. You don't have back-to-back down years in stocks unless there's a recession. 73, 74, then 2000, 2001, 2002, only times S&P's been down more than two years in a row or, or two years in a row. And those are recessionary environments. We just don't see that happening. So that's another you know, small bullet point maybe for the bulls that, yes, we're up, well, I guess, 4.5% for the year on the S&P right now, uh, that we still could have, uh, you know, higher equity prices when all is said and done this year, potentially double-digit earnings, uh, I'm sorry, double-digit stock gains this year is what we're kind of expecting in 2019.
0: Well, what technically, you know, tell me the charts that you're looking at. I might lose Jason as a result of this, but I do like some of the technicals. Like, what is, you know, I understand oversold and we can get a bounce, but if anything, we've learned this past year is that we've seen oversold conditions and we bounce back, but we can sell off again. So I'm just curious how reliable the charts are at this point, especially in an environment of increased volatility.
3: Well, you're right, Carol. So when you talk about what the charts are saying, back in early October, we did see some stress when we looked at like the credit markets, high yield spreads. Some of those things where the bond market was almost saying, hey, something might be wrong. Small caps were actually lagging back then, obviously. Now when you flip, flip, you know, credit markets are starting to calm down a little bit. We're seeing the small caps lead. Let's just look globally for a second. You know, Emerging markets. They did not violate, emerging markets did not violate the early October low. So you got some relative strength coming from emerging markets. And our opinion there is, hey, if you're going to have a global recession, emerging markets are probably going to get hit pretty hard. Emerging markets might be telling us, hey, something's going on here globally that we're not going to have a global recession, like some people think. And emerging markets leading us is actually a good sign for the overall global market and you know U.S. stocks as well, because, again, the earnings are still coming in the U.S., and so we still think that's a place to be.
1: Ryan, we've spent the last two days on this show. So looking toward uh, looking east uh, as it were to everything that's happening uh, in the UK. We have a monitor right. here in our studio where we spend a lot of time uh, trying to ascertain what's exactly happening in Parliament with people going in and out people speaking, shouting all that uh, good stuff. <laughs> uh, what does it mean for an investor because candidly we have not seen the markets move in any sort of dramatic fashion despite all the drama that seems to be happening politically.
3: Uh, You're right, Jason. You know, I've got my screen up. It looks like Europe was up green across the board. FTSE 100 at UK was up 60 basis points today on the heels of, obviously, the news yesterday. So that was very priced in, in our opinion. I mean, our stance at LPR Research, I've been here three years now. It's actually my... um three year anniversary this week but the three years i've been here when it looks at developed markets we've just been light a little light on developed markets and the models that we run for our advisors and we continue to think that there's still these overhangings the dynamic uh, dynamics are just slowing in europe the growth is a little slower so to us, you know, hey, Brexit is clearly one of the big overhangs as well. But we just think there's more opportunity in the United States and emerging markets than when it comes to uh, specifically Europe. But, hey, markets are forward-looking, and they've taken this in stride, really. Uh, yesterday's vote, which obviously came in worse than most people expected. So the fact we were green today for, for Europe, I say we, Europe was higher today, maybe that's a little bit of a small, uh, small sign for the bulls that maybe something finally a little positive is coming out of Europe, even though it didn't seem positive.
0: What are your charts telling you about financials? They're the best performer in the S&P 500 today, up about 2.4%, obviously playing off of right. uh, the bank earnings. But I am curious, what uh, are the charts telling you about that group in particular, and what that yep. group may tell us about the bigger, broader market?
3: For sure. Well, obviously, financials are a very big part, obviously, to the overall market. And all of a sudden, you know, on a relative strength basis, almost like you turn the calendar, all of a sudden, financials are starting to do really well here. And the reaction to the earnings the last couple days from those big banks, I mean, some of them weren't even that great, the earnings, but the reaction was so positive. It makes you think maybe some of that extreme negative news has kind of been priced in. I know what happened in December with the trading volumes. A lot of banks had some depressing news there. But hey, the reaction is what matters. And Carol, now we're starting to see some good relative strength out of financials and financials obviously are a very big part of value we think value should outperform growth in 2019 and one of those big reasons we think financials are going to finally start to lead here yield curve potentially steepen as i said because the economy is not quite on bad of footing is what people give it credit for and um, financials are kind of lead us that's what we're seeing so far you're know, only two weeks in i get it but um this financial leadership is a nice change and we think it has legs
1: Ryan, biggest single worry now. We've had a lot of green uh, so far in 19, especially it feels especially good after what we experienced toward the end of 18. What's the biggest worry on your mind right now?
3: Well, right here we still have to say trade, right? I think most people think March 1st is when, well, March 1st is when a lot of those tariffs are going to come into play. And we know that that day is there. It's got a big X on the calendar. So, you know, most people are starting to think, hey, maybe there's some type of resolution that's going to happen. If that were to crash and burn, you know, this nice bounce in January could go away in a hurry. We can go right back down to the December, I'm sorry, to the uh, Christmas Eve low. So if trade were to fall apart, that's our big concern. that kind of keeps us up at night. We don't think that's the case, but absolutely that's the big worry.
1: Ryan Dietrich, Senior Market Strategist at LPL Financial, overseeing about $659 billion. Joining us on the phone from Charlotte. Always appreciate your insights. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio.